There's a very big picture um, of uh, things that would happen if we removed animals from our diet. There's also byproducts um, in the sense of what goes into medicine and goes into our everyday life products that um, people don't talk about. And so I think the thing that's being presented, like, you know, eat less, eat less meat, we can save the planet, is um, very, very, very um, small, narrow scope of the big picture conversation. You're listening to the High Performance Health Podcast, helping you optimize your health, performance, and longevity. My name is Angela Foster, and I'm a former corporate lawyer and high performance health coach. Each week, I bring you cutting edge biohacks, inspiring insights, and high performance habits to unlock optimal health, performance, and longevity. So excited that you've chosen to join me today. Now, let's dive in. Hi friends, I have a very different episode for you this week. We're actually going to be talking all about farming and how to understand the quality of the food you're eating, what's important, how to really read food labels effectively, um, what are the principles of good soil and making sure that we're getting enough micronutrients. And we also touch on why veganism may not be the best thing for the environment. I'm sitting down with Natalie Kavarak and Tara Vanderdessen, who are the two co-hosts of Discover AG, which is um, a number one podcast in the US. And they've been sharing a ton of information about farming and agriculture over the last 10 years and have built a sizable community. They're really knowledgeable. They're also lots of fun. I learn a lot in this and I think you will too. So without further delay, let me introduce you to Natalie and Tara. So I'm really excited today on the show to have two, well, a a dairy farmer and a rancher with me. We haven't actually talked about farming on this podcast, and I think it's a really, really important topic. So um, I'm very excited to welcome Tara Vanderdussen, who is a um, dairy farmer and also an environmental scientist, and also Natalie Kovarik, who is a pharmacist and a rancher. So first of all, ladies, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having us on. We're excited to talk with you today. Very excited. Yeah. yeah, me too. Me too. I think I'm going to learn a lot myself on this because we were just talking offline. Might be a good place to start, actually. We we're just talking about whey protein and, and dairy. And, and you told me something that I was not aware of. Um, so I think this might be a good place to start. Let's start with dairy products. A lot of people that I speak to, particularly women, and I think there is quite a bit of literature around this, that dairy can be quite inflammatory and problematic, uh, in particular for women and things like breakouts with the skin. Um, when we're looking at dairy, when I think about milk, for example, my concern is always how much kind of growth factors or hormones there are naturally in it. And and does that kind of aggravate, um, and cause a bit more inflammation, but also the processing of it, because here in the UK, I'm not sure what it's like in America, we have two processes if it's not raw milk. So we have pasteurization and then we have homogenization. Uh, and I'm kind of, I, I think with my kids, if they have organic milk, then I'm careful to make sure it's not homogenized on top of pasteurized, because I feel like that adds another level, which my understanding is, and I could have this wrong, is that homogenization stops the cream separating from the rest of the milk. I quite like the cream on top. Um, and that was considered here in the UK, I think something that consume was led by consumer demand, supposedly. Uh, but that's kind of my ambit of dairy. What do we need to know? First of all, let's start there about buying and eating oh, dairy. You have covered a lot of things in that statement. So I'll kind of break it down into a few okay. different things. Um, the inflammation one is kind of where you started. And there is a lot of new research that is really positive in milk not causing inflammation, depending on, you know, you know, are you adding, you know, sugar to it? Is it chocolate milk? All these different things that you can or cannot do. So there's some really exciting research that I think um, is definitely more positive for dairy. So it'll be curious. I'm curious to see how that will develop and come out and be more peer reviewed data coming out on that. And then, um, you know, going to the hormone side, you know, there, we know there's naturally occurring hormones and everything. I think what, uh, for dairy, a lot of the questions are around, are there added hormones? And especially in the United States, we have like a lot of conversations about the RBST and a fun fact, like that's not actually in use anymore for any milk on the shelf for fluid milk at all. So a lot of really positive things happening. And then going to your pasteurization homogenization question, I'm so glad you actually like know about this because a lot of people do not know that homogenization is another process that milk goes through. And it's exactly what you said. It breaks up the cream so that it stays a single consistency and the cream does not rise to the top. Um, if you've ever had non-homogenized milk, you have to shake it before you drink it. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a very creamy milk at first and more of uh, not as creamy milk 
at the end. Um, so as a or kid, scoop was, the cream off the top, right? Yes, Which tastes so good. <laughs> yes. Um, I was actually raised on um, raw milk most of my life and have recently um, in my adult years transitioned to pasteurized milk. And I still, my husband and I both shake the gallon of milk out of habit when we grab our gallon of milk, just because we were, you know, it's what was ingrained into us as kids with the raw milk. Um, so there is, I feel like when you get to the milk aisle, there is a thousand choices these days. And it is exactly what you said. It's really driven by consumer demand, what different consumers like, what, you know, uh, jives with their body. We have a lot of lactose-free options now. We have, you know, the A2 milk that has just come onto the market more recently that is something different. Um, so there's just a lot of choices and kind of figuring out which one works best for you, you know, your system. It's There's just so many different choices. Um, so I don't know, we can break down some of those a little bit more, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot happening in the dairy aisle right now. Yeah, there is. And over here as well. I mean, the A2 milk, uh, and I, what I see is Jersey cows as well, that apparently their milk may be better tolerated. Um, can you expand so, a little bit on that? Or Yeah. So Jersey cows typically are more um, likely to have A2, but Holsteins can have A2 as well. It's more how you breed them. So we actually spent several years breeding to A2. We kind of stopped just because we have not seen the market take off in the way that people kind of predicted it to. So it just hasn't made sense for us moving forward. Um, but essentially it's a different type of milk protein casein. Um, and so there's A1 and there's A2. And some people have found that A2 is, you know, similar to like lactose-free, like it, it just works better for their system. And so you can breed the cows to strictly A2. So they will only produce the A2 casein protein for milk. Uh, so there, again, there's not a ton of research out there on that one, but I'm always a big fan of food choice. If you find a food that works for you, I think that's great. And um, it's worth giving it a shot. If you've had, you know, lactose issues in the past or something like that, there's, there's just so many things you can go out and try now. And what would you say when uh, this, this statement sort of gets banded around quite a bit is milk is designed for a baby cow and to grow a calf. Humans were not designed to eat, <laughs> to drink it, should I say? Yeah, that is always one I kind of have to laugh at because it's, you know, we're the only species that only mammal that continues drinking milk. Like we're the only mammal that like puts ourselves into a plane and like, you know, rockets across the, the world or into space. Um, and so there's a lot of things that we've done throughout humanity that are maybe like different. I mean, you know, I had avocados yesterday. I live in New Mexico. I get, you know, in theory, I shouldn't eat avocados because I am not living where avocados are being grown. Um, and so there's, I feel like a lot of foods like that in actuality, if you go back to the history of, you know, the civilization, especially in European countries, I mean, we have been consuming milk for centuries. It is a part of our diet it is something we have evolved in. And there's some really cool research out there about it helping our, you know, brains be able to, to develop faster and evolve faster because we were getting such high quality protein. Uh, so I obviously disagree with the train of thought that we weren't meant to drink it. I think that there's probably lots of food we've incorporated into our diets that we've found to be very beneficial. And I think milk is one of those. Mm. Well, you could kind of then like, you could sort of uh, extrapolate from that, that a hen's egg was only designed to be fertilized and never be eaten, right? But actually, apart from vitamin C is one of the most complete uh, foods on the planet nutritionally. So yeah, it's kind of yeah. interesting. And on the flip side, and I'll kick it over kind of to Natalie, actually, like if that's your train of thought, then like you think about, you know, the plant-based burgers, well, then we shouldn't be processing all of these different foods and combining them all together into, you know, some kind of, you know, replica of meat when it's not actually like we should just be consuming it in its raw form. Like there's so many different ways that you can go with that conversation. And I feel like that's why it's such a, it's a, such a weird conversation to have because it's we're consuming all sorts of different, different foods. Hmm. And certainly, actually, genetically, what I see is some people have the lactase persistence gene. Uh, when I've looked, I've looked at hundreds of DNA reports now, and some people, some people have it, some people don't. Some people have one copy, and as you say, I think there's some evidence pointing to the fact that in Europe we've been doing it so long that we've evolved actually to be able to digest lactose in most cases quite effectively. Correct. That is a similar research that I have seen and that we have talked about, you know, um, some Asian countries have just have not evolved with it in the same way and they have a harder time. And so, you know, trying if if milk is something you want to incorporate in your diet, like trying those A2 or the lactose free options can be, you know, a great start or some of the cheeses that are naturally lactose free. A lot of times, you know, cheeses um, can be easier to digest uh, because of the way, you know, the cultures interact with the milk. 
Uh, thank you. So I'm going to come on to you, Natalie, in just a moment, because I definitely do want to talk about the way animals are raised. And you might even have a view on this bit just while we sort of finish on on dairy. Um, what about the content of the milk and the way that that animal is raised? Right. So if we're looking at cow's milk, first of all, um, the kind of fatty acids that are in the milk, if that cow has been grass fed, how much is that affecting? I know there's like quite a bit around the quality of the meat what about the dairy products that are coming from it yeah so um you know nutrition is really crucial on our dairy uh, we actually have a nutritionist that plans all of our cows diets and you know there's a lot of conversation around grass-fed versus like grain finish or grain fed on dairies too like you'll see grass-fed um milk out on the shelves and so we're actually a conventional dairy. And so our milk goes into the conventional milk supply. It actually goes into cheese primarily. Um, but yeah, the quality of the milk is something we're actually paid on. So if the quality of your milk is not good, you get paid less or the processors won't even pick it up. Like if your milk does not meet all of the, the check marks. And I mean, it's really, we're testing to the parts per billion. Every tanker of milk that leaves our farm is tested for quality and safety and a number of things. Um, and if it doesn't pass those test, it will not be picked up. I mean, even the temperature, my husband always jokes, like it has to be below 36 degrees. So his least favorite number, I think is 37 degrees. Cause if our milk is 37 degrees, they will not pick it up. Um, and so it has to, you know, meet all of those standards. And then if you exceed them, you're paid on it. And so one of the most important pieces of that is diet, like truly cows diets, um, are, have been, we have really like dialed in like optimal diets. Um, and I think that's for organic and conventional. There is differences, but even our conventional cows are still fed grass. Like we still feed alfalfa. We still have lots of other feeds in there besides grains. And one of the things I love to share about is actually um, people talk a lot about corn when they are talking about cattle being fed. And something that most people don't know is one of the things we feed our cattle is actually corn silage, where it's the entire plant, the leaves, the stems, and the corn on the cob. But when you look at it, it looks more like a salad, like a Southwest salad, as we have here in the United States with like a little bit of corn and lots of greens. That's kind of what corn silage looks like. And that's actually a big component of our cow's diets as well. So there's a lot less, it's not, when you think of corn, it's not like, you know, a corn on the cob. It is a lot more variety and greens and haze and all of those grasses and things that you think of in a traditional cow's diet. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably like me. You want to have high energy every day to achieve everything you want to, while also protecting your health span and longevity. And for the last six months, I've been taking a supplement called NAD Regen by Biostat Labs. Not only does it contain a powerful combination of niacinamide, NAD3 and resveratrol, which support NAD, also known as the molecule of youth, it has spermidine in it. And spermidine helps inhibit many of the hallmarks of aging. It also supports better cognition, improved memory, heart health, and circadian rhythm. And I'll tell you what I've noticed since taking NAD Regen is consistently high energy, which is a huge bonus, given that I'm always juggling the demands of running both my businesses alongside my kids and all of their activities and my daily workouts. And I've also noticed a lot of new hair growth, which is common with spermidine. The beauty benefits are, of course, always welcome. So after experiencing all these benefits, I wanted you to experience similar ones. And so I've arranged a very special offer with our sponsors, Biostat Labs. When you buy two bottles of NAD Regen, Biostat Labs are giving listeners of this show a free bottle of GD Aid, their glucose supplement that contains the very best ingredients for all-round metabolic health. I take NAD Regen in the morning in a fasted state before my workout to amplify the autophagy boosting effects and then GDA just before my most carb heavy meal of the day to blunt the glucose spike. To get your free bottle of GDA and all the energy and health promoting benefits of NAD Regen, head over to biostacklabs.com forward slash Angela. And when you purchase two bottles of NAD Regen, Biostat Labs will send you a free bottle of GD Aid. That's biostatlabs.com forward slash Angela to get your exclusive offer. I'm inviting you to join our newly opened High Performance Health Facebook group, where we're all about unlocking our utmost potential. If you are a fellow biohacker, a coach, or a woman with an entrepreneurial spirit looking for peak performance, 
then our community of ambitious women is just for you. But it's not just about connecting with like-minded women. It's about empowering each other. We have weekly live training, Q&As, and a bunch of other exclusive content that I don't get the chance to share anywhere else. New biohacks I'm exploring, plus extra nuggets of wisdom from my podcast guests and so much more. It's free to join. Simply click the top link in the show notes or go to angelafoster.me forward slash HPH. That's angelafoster.me forward slash HPH or click the top link in the show notes. And once inside, send me a message so we can connect personally. I can't wait to see you there. And if you want to have a healthy um, cow with a really good kind of profile in terms of like things like omega-3, uh, how much corn, like what's the, the ratio when you're looking at that, if you're saying they're having some corn and some and all the other bits and the, the greens that go with it, how would we know as a consumer uh, what to look for? Because I'm always like asking my butcher, for example, is it grass fed? And then often the question is, well, okay, it's grass fed, but is it grass finished? Which I know a lot of them are then taken off and fattened up on grain at the end. Uh, and it's it's a bit harder to go and get grass finished. Can you kind of enlighten my audience on what's really important here and what they should be looking for? Yeah, I'll finish up milk and then I'll actually pivot to Natalie for the, okay. kind of the rest of that sure. question. Um, so the omega-3s in milk is always the conversation. So grass-fed, grass-finished uh, milk will have higher omega-3s. I think one of the things to consider is it is not a significant amount of omega-3s. There is there's still not a lot of omega-3s even in grass-fed um, and grass-finished just because milk's not a good source. I mean, we know this milk's not a great source of omega-3s no matter what one you're getting. If you are really out there looking to get omega-3s, um, I feel like, you know, I am not a registered dietitian, but when I've talked to them, they're like, there's other sources that are really the what we would tell people to target for those omega-3s than milk. Um, that doesn't mean, again, Natalie and I both will tell you, we are super food choice, pro-food choice on everything, picking what's right for you and your family. Um, but then like kind of knowing the facts of what goes into it. And so that is kind of always my conversation around it is if you're looking for the omega-3s, I don't know if milk is where you want to get it. Mm. I didn't think that would be where I would look for it. I was just curious as to how much oh, when yeah. you're looking at like the way the animals fed. And I definitely want to chat to Natalie about that in relation to meat consumption at the moment in a moment. Yeah, there is a slight difference there. There's slightly more omega-3s in the grass-fed, grass-finished milk to answer that specific question. Yes. Now, exactly how much? I'm not, I do not have that number off the top of my head. I'm sorry. And what about when we then look at other products, for example, so if we're looking at yogurt, right? So like Greek style yogurt has a really nice uh, creamy flavor. Um, are there things that we should look at in terms of cultures, like if we want to support a healthy gut microbiome, what's the differences between like different types of yogurts? You have natural yogurt, you have Greek style yogurt. What are the key differences? Yeah, my thing with yogurts is I always look for a the large number of uh, the probiotics that are in there, you know, the, or the live cultures, sorry, the live cultures, and you want them to be live active cultures. So you can usually find those on the label of how many there is, um, but you want to see really high numbers and you want to see live active cultures uh, in those yogurts, and those will really support gut health. And what would be a high number on a yogurt? Gosh, I'm trying to remember. I knew I was like, I feel like this is where this is headed. I feel like it was in like the you want them in the millions. Like there, it's a really big number. Um, I don't remember exactly what it is, but I feel like when you look on the back, usually if it has the number, that's a good indicator because they're yeah. wanting you to know that that's how high their number is. Okay. Okay. So they're yeah, they're predicating on that basis. Um, okay. And what about in terms of um pasteurization you were saying that you have moved from raw milk to pasteurized yourself um here in europe like less common with milk but definitely with cheeses for example there's quite a few unpasteurized cheeses so for example if we go and buy gruyere generally that would not be pasteurized uh, often also the case with parmesan because it's aged um can you explain a bit more from a consumer's perspective from a health perspective what what we should be looking at with cheese yeah. So cheeses, uh, there is a lot of cheeses that are unpasteurized and it's exactly what you said. If they're aged, they don't necessarily have to be pasteurized because that aging process eliminates some of the risk um, that can be associated with foodborne illnesses, which is why we started pasteurizing right to begin with. Um, I personally, like I said, I consume now pasteurized milk and I haven't noticed any difference in how I feel or my health versus, you know, the raw milk. I am a type of person that I am consuming milk to get more of the protein. And that is really what it helped me do is hit my protein uh, goals for the day. 
Um, but yeah, the pasteurization process is obviously to, you know, eliminate foodborne illnesses, although the risk is fairly low with raw milk. I mean, you want to make sure you know your farmer, you want to make sure that your bottles are very sanitized. A lot of times some of the issues can actually come from the bottles themselves. So, you know, where are you storing them once you leave the farm? There's so many different things that go into that. So just making sure you know you're consuming like a raw product and, and treating it as such, like that you get it right into the fridge. It's in the cold part of the fridge, that kind of thing. You're consuming it quickly. Um, and then that goes to the pasteurization part. Um, it also extends shelf life, which is important for a lot of people. You know, people are not consuming milk that fast, that longer shelf life can be really helpful. Um, it can help your budget, you know, that you're not throwing out food, uh, reduce food waste as well. So there is, there's definitely a lot of pros I'd say to pasteurization. Um, I just, I think it depends what you have access to. You know, a lot of people do not have access to a farm where they can get raw milk. Um, and so I, you know, as a dairy farmer, I personally consume pa pasteurized milk, knowing what goes into it and everything. Um, I feel that it is a safe, nutritious product. And um, that's really what I'm looking for when I'm consuming milk. And what about last question, packaging, right? I remember growing up and the milkman would deliver the milk in glass bottles with that lovely creamy top, maybe left on the doorstep, which probably wasn't great for bacteria uh, until yeah. it was brought in. <laughs> but now everything's in plastic or it's in cartons, which look like uh, cardboard and paper, but they're not really, they've got plastic lining. Uh, obviously the transfer of plastics and things is greater when they're heated. Uh, milk you you were saying it needs to be at a temperature below a certain temperature what are your thoughts around that and how much we need to be concerned yeah so the plastic containers I mean I do think one of the good things about milk it is cold like you said um one of the things actually my big thing that I don't like our plastic containers for is um it can actually make the milk go bad faster having a clear container, that is why a lot have moved to the cartons where you can't actually see the milk is because that makes it last longer. Um, it has to do with the oxidization of milk. That is beyond what I know, but that's what it has to do with. And so, um, yeah, I do wish that some of our packaging would change a little bit. I think that um, we had a big shift where we changed from the glass bottles to the plastic bottles. And we have not seen a lot of new like product development in the milk space in a really long time. I, I personally would love to see an update to some of our products. I know that's easier said than done. These plants, these bottling plants, you know, we know they're costing hundreds of millions of dollars at this point to build. So to be like, oh, go in and change, you know, how it's packaged is not as easy as it sounds. Um, but it is as a dairy farmer, I would love to see some new, some new packaging in the, the space for lots of reasons for the fact that, you know, the clear makes it go bad faster for people that don't like plastics um, and the single use plastics. Um, although milk bottles are one of the most recycled uh, plastics there is. So that is one positive that comes out of milk bottles. Um, but yes, we need some updating in the dairy, the dairy space. That's super interesting. That's something I did not know that the uh, if you can see through it, it's more likely to oxidize. So it's almost like wine then if in mm -hmm. preferably it would be actually in a dark glass bottle. Yep. A dark glass bottle would be preferable. And if you go back, um, like we, my mom collects milk bottles. A lot of the older ones are amber colored glass bottles. And um, that's what it had to do with, but people wanted to see the product. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they transitioned to the clear glass bottles because they wanted to see how, you know, the cream, like you were talking about the white and all of those things. And so again, consumer driven um, that may have been not always in a line with like science or why we were doing things to begin with. But um, as farmers, I feel like if there's one thing we're good at doing. It's giving people what they want. <laughs> And so that was one of the changes that we made. Hmm. Interesting. Um, cool. That's very, very interesting. Thank you. Uh, Natalie, you have been sitting very, <laughs> very quietly, and I'm sure have lots to add uh, in relation to the way that animals are raised. When we're looking at it, I mean, we've been talking a lot about cows here primarily. When we're looking at consuming beef, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm always trying to get grass-fed, grass-finished, um, and kind of buy the best sort of quality animals we can it's not I know it's not always easy for people listening particularly here in the UK as well we have everything has become extremely expensive and I I myself am very surprised when I look back at like when we were in the pandemic at COVID and I would go to my local farm shop and everyone everyone actually was starting to retreat more locally right because the supermarkets and things are closing and the difference in price in three years here in the UK certainly is huge. Uh, what are your thoughts around what do we need to look for as consumers and, and what's the kind of best quality also for people who might be thinking about a budget at the same time? Yeah, so I'll try not to repeat anything you guys talked about because there are a lot of similarities. You know, when Tara's talking about grass fed, grass finished, when it comes to milk, it's 
obviously going to be a different product when you're looking at beef, but um, a lot of the same conversation of the things that are going on behind the scenes and the nuances to the, to the, you know, the products. Um, Tara's already mentioned it a couple of times, but her and I both really stand for food choice. And so a lot of the conversations her and I have about sourcing food, isn't so much telling people exactly which product they should go get, you know, we're not here to recommend one over the other, but we're really here to kind of peel back the transparency and just show how, like you said, animals are raised or what it goes, you know, what the actual difference is so that they can make that informed choice. So, um, there are differences if you are going to, like you said, maybe source directly from a local rancher, um, or a butcher shop that maybe sources, you know, directly from the rancher is smaller than, you know, going to the grocery store. Um, but at the end of the day, I do want people to feel really good about meat. I think sometimes we get, um, so in the weeds about the conversations of, you know, like you said, omega threes versus omega sixes. And, um, and we kind of lose sight of the big picture, which is, you know, meat is one of the most, um, milk to, you know, whole, whole animal proteins are one of the best things we can put in our body. You know, they have all the essential amino acids we need. They're more readily bioavailable, sorry, than plant proteins. Um, so if all you can afford is the grocery store beef, um, I want you to feel really good about that. Cause at the end of the day, that's going to be, um, more, you know, that is going to serve your body, um, in a better way than a lot of other food choices. I love that you said that because I think that's such an important point. And I think people are really like, you know, worrying and 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 I think it, it can get a bit much at times, right? Because they're so concerned about what they're consuming. And as you say, the um vitamin and mineral content and amino acid profile of meat is so strong. Um, and also not to forget like the fact that it's such a bioavailable source of things like heme iron, right? It's in and many women uh, you know, are struggling with iron deficiency and things like that. And so they need that. Um what are the differences when when you're looking at it, like the types of different animals that are raised that can get confusing? I mean, we were talking with milk about Jersey cows and different ones. We we think about, you know, Scotland and Aberdeen, Angus meat. What are the differences here? Yeah, you're going to have some breeds over there that I'm probably not as familiar with <laughs> here in the States. Yeah, maybe. Um, and you know, I don't, I think some well-trained people can taste the differences. I grew up on um, the Hereford breed and, uh, you know, that's what I primarily consumed growing up, actually entirely consumed growing up. And now my husband and I raised black Angus, and I don't know if I could actually tell the difference between, uh, you know, if you put one steak in front of me and the other, um, so it might come down to preference. I know that's a big thing with grass finished, um, beef, it's going to taste a little bit different than grain finished beef because of that marbling. You kind of already alluded to it, but you know, the grain finish is put in there to increase the fat content, give it that good marbling. And so there will be a taste difference there. Um, but I'm not sure I have, you know, much to add on if you could tell the differences between some of the breeds. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. I'm trying to remember now the names escaping me, uh, there's a specific type of grain fed Japanese. Beef. Oh, Wagyu probably. Right? Yeah, Wagyu Wagyu Wagyu. Beef. That's it. Wagyu beef. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I've actually never tried Wagyu either. I'm kind of, <laughs> you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to fill our freezer with the beef that we raise ourselves. And so I kind of, I guess I am maybe in my own little, you know, world of, um, I've always just eaten what we've raised. So I, I have, um, I should try Wagyu though, sometimes when I'm out at a restaurant or something. And I'm just over here having Holstein beef because I <laughs> consume beef off of my dairy cow. So I'm like in a totally different breed than all of you guys. You guys are so lucky to have it all so, yeah, so accessible and fresh, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah. Wagyu, for me, it just like, I mean, it's it's expensive, right, and considered a delicacy, but Wagyu is pr pr almost all grain, grain fed, is it not? The whole idea is to create that fattier, marbled, like, so that it's kind of moist, like melt-in-the-mouth type beef. Yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm letting you down. I just don't um, have a ton of information or familiarity with Wagyu beef um, to kind of discuss, yeah, the the differences between, I imagine there's, a, yeah, there's obviously going to be differences, but sometimes I think as consumers, when we're a little bit removed from things, we think there is a bigger difference um, than there is in reality. So it, I should dive into that and see, you know, what um, the exact differences are, because it might surprise us that maybe how um, similarly they raise to our, our, to a lot of other products as well. And what about looking at poultry, for example? So what should we be thinking about here? Because again, like this is sort of free range. There's a whole, uh, like 
I think it's quite confusing for the consumer, right? Because what does free mage mean? Does it mean that they just got to go outside for like 10 minutes, you know what I mean? And have a little poodle around and then they're put back in barns or they're on top of each other. What are they fed? You know, some supermarkets here will advertise corn-fed meat and the color looks completely, it's not something I buy, uh, and that's grain phases. It looks completely different. The chicken looks yellow uh, in color. What should we be thinking about that? Yeah, so you're kind of touching actually on one of Tara and I's soapboxes, which is food labeling. Um, and how we kind of feel it's really um, almost doing a disservice to consumers now. I really feel for people who have to go into the grocery store and aren't, you know, so close to agriculture and food and farming like Tara and I are. Um, you know, Tara alluded to she it was raised on raw milk, um, switched to, you know, conventional or pasteurized in her later years um, because she knows what goes into it. Right. So she sees it. She feels safe with it. And I feel that way about a lot of our food system that I am able to have, I think, a layer of trust that um, people who are little bit further removed from it don't have. And naturally I would probably be the same way if I was far removed, I would have a ton of questions and I would have probably a lot of confusion and almost anxiety going into the grocery store. And so that's one thing Tara and I really try to do on our podcast is kind of alleviate, um, kind of the barriers to going into the grocery store. And I think that labels have become that now. I don't think they are essentially to help you guys understand what's behind the packaging. I think they're more a marketing tactic. Um, and so I'm always a little leery of, of trying, you know, I obviously do the research you can and you want. Um, I think if you are want to know the most about your product, whether it's going to be pork or the milk, you know, raw milk or, um, you know, beef or um, chicken, I think if you have the means and access to supporting local and buying direct from the farmer, I think that's kind of the point, right? Because you, then you can ask all those questions. Um, and sometimes they don't even have the labels because they don't need them. You know, they're able to just show you, you can go pick it up and you can see. And so there's that familiarity. So I think if you really, you know, have the access and you care that much about understanding, um, I think the best thing is going to directly to the source, um, just because those, like you said, what exactly does, you know, free range mean versus um, pasture raised versus all these different things. And and there's even that confusion when it comes to beef. And so it's hard to kind of break it down. Um, some of them, I don't even know, you know, I went to the chicken aisle the other day and there was something on there I had never seen before and didn't even know what it was. And so I, um, I wish we would get somewhere else with food labeling. I think it's gotten really off track and from the point, um, which is to help the consumer. Mm, I think it's really confusing. What should, yeah. what, what should a chicken be fed? Oh, um, I mean, so one interesting thing that I love to talk about when it comes to, um, again, animal proteins, we kind of all get lumped together, pork, beef, and chicken, and uh, beef is actually very different, um, one from the animal. So, uh, you know, chicken is going to be a monogastric animal. They have one stomach, whereas a beef is going to be a ruminant animal, which is one of the cool things of why they can upcycle um, so many animal products. Tara already talked about byproducts. Um, I think it's over 80 per six. 86% of a cow's diet is actually inedible to humans. So they're getting grass, they're getting um, all the byproducts, they're getting different forages. Um, it's very, very diverse. They can do that because they are, um, they have four stomachs, they're ruminants, whereas, you know, chicken's different. So um, I am, you know, not super familiar with how chickens are raised. I have, I have actually never even raised chickens. I would love to have my own eggs, but I found at this point in my life that it's easier to, I have neighbors that have eggs. I have three of my neighbors do. And so it's easier for me to just buy directly from them, I guess, and boost our, you know, local neighbor economy. Um, but yeah, it is, it is different when you think about, um, how a chicken is going to be raised. There are also, it's a huge difference in the supply chain. Um, chicken and pork are vertically integrated which means they're going to be raised um, or owned, sorry, owned by, you know, one entity from the beginning to the end. So the easiest example right now is to say Tyson. Tyson owns, you know, the beginning of the egg all the way until the process that you buy at the grocery store. It's vertically integrated. Um, the beef system is not that way. We're actually very, very segmented, which is one thing a lot of people don't know. Um, so it's uh, selling. There's like four different selling points, three different selling points. Um, it changes hands a lot. It's, um, it's, it's really, um, I like to explain it kind of like you could think of it as an hourglass or an inverted triangle, but at the top of the beef supply chain is, um, very big. And in the U S speaking numbers, I don't know European, I'm sorry, but, um, in the U S it's over 700,000 families. So it's very large, right? It's that top of the, or the base of the triangle, if it's inverted or the top of the hourglass, um, here in the U S it's over 700,000. Our average herd size is 43. So it's, it's a lot of families. Um, and then as you go down the triangle or the hourglass, um, it gets a little bit smaller. So there's a backgrounding phase, which is a little bit less. And then there's the feedlot phase, which is a little bit less. And then the very tight top of the triangle or um, the hourglass at the very you know center where the, 
the sand has trouble getting through is our packers. You know, we have a, we have a packer problem here in the U S I don't know what packing looks like, um, overseas, but we have a oligopoly here, the four packers that kind of dominate, um, you know, the whole market, they dominate the prices. You know, when you talk about beef being raised, um, it's not essentially coming, you know, from me and my husband, um, and our operation asking for a price increase when it comes to our meat, it is, um, something that is really out of our hands. Um, and it, it's usually dictated by the packers here which I know is a tangent did not answer your chicken question, but, um, that is because I'm much more familiar with beef than I am with, with chicken. Beef. Okay. Yeah. In which case then you probably, both of you can't answer. So just please don't feel you have to try. I, I guess I've seen different things around the color of an egg and what that signifies, whether that's to do with omega-3 or actually vitamin A and how dark, uh, the, the orange or yellowness of the egg is any, uh, intelligence on that. Yeah, you pretty much touched on my intelligence there that yeah, it depends on what different vitamins and minerals they're getting fed, um, and how I can change the color. And that's not just eggs. I mean, that can go into, you know, fish we've seen like they're, you know, depending on what different animals are being fed, it definitely changes the color. I mean, I think the easiest one to think of is like the flamingo, right? Like it eats a lot of pink foods and vi those vitamins end up coming out pink. I always think of it similar to the egg, depending on what that chicken's eating, it does have an impact on the different colors that are going to come out through the egg. Right. Um, what about let's, let's talk slightly differently. Now. Uh, I know that you talk a lot about regenerative farming. There is kind of two big camps here that are on polarized ends of the spectrum that we know one end is vegan is better uh, it's it's better for the animals. It's not fair to the animals to be killing them. Uh, and also it's better that everyone kind of eats plant-based foods uh, and the style of farming is better for the environment. And then I see things that actually, no, this is not true. And um, vegan farming is actually killing tons and tons of our ecosystem and insects and things like that. And without being a farmer, I think it's quite difficult unless you really want to go deep into farming, which I haven't. Uh, what, what can you share in relation to that? Yeah, so there is uh, two extremes. Um, and I think those are the loud voices, right? And then there's probably everything in between, which is what Tara and I like to talk about as a spectrum, which is a little bit more common ground, a little bit more, I feel like, um, would be safe ground. Um, so when you are talking about, um, I guess we could start on one spectrum end and maybe work towards the other. Um, when you're talking about, you know, the vegan camp, veganism being better for your body and better for the planet, that is something obviously Tara and I do not subscribe to. And, and there's that on a personal belief, um, you know, from how we see our practices and how we see, you know, animal welfare carried out on our own operations, as well as neighbors, friends, family, um, and, you know, what we know to be true across the industry. Um, and then there's also, uh, you know, the science, the numbers behind it to, to support it. So there's studies out there that show if we all, you know, adopted that way of eating, um, if we completely removed plants or sorry, meat from our diet, we would only decrease the global greenhouse gas foot, um, print by about two point, I think it's 6%. Um, it's definitely under 3%, um, which uh, we're not denying that there, you know, that would be a reduction and, and an improvement, but I think it is a lot smaller of a number than people realize, especially if, um, it's a harder choice for them to remove meat from their diets, um, especially if they're having health complications from it. Um, so I think we've become, you know, Tara and I say very carbon tunnel vision as a society where all we can focus on is reducing carbon. All we can talk about is methane. Um, and we're losing a lot of big picture stuff. You know, yes, we would decrease the greenhouse gas emissions by less than 3%, but we would, you know, increase our calories. We would um, see nutrient deficiencies. We already talked about women having iron problems, you know? Um, so there's a lot, I think, when it comes to the environment part that isn't necessarily true about um, practices. And then also, I think we're really, really losing sight of um, what are, would actually happen to our bodies. Um, and then Tara already alluded to it, you know, way, way long ago, but cattle, we eat byproducts. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, ripple effects of what would happen. There's studies to show that actually um, greenhouse gases may increase um, because cattle wouldn't be consuming all the byproducts that they are now. And those would have to either go to a landfill, um, which is a methane emitter. Uh, I don't know, if, you know, it's, it's actually a very large methane emitter. Cattle kind of get the bad rap for that, but there's a lot of other things that emit methane and landfills are one of them. Um, and at the best case, it would be composted. <laughs> no, um, I, was, so it, I do not know what word you're looking for. Composted. Yeah, composted. Yeah. Uh, so if all those byproducts were composted, um, we'd still see an increase because, you know, um, ruminants, cattle are no longer consuming them. So there's a very big picture um, 
of uh, things that would happen if we removed animals from our diet. There's also byproducts um, in the sense of what goes into medicine and goes into our everyday life products that um, people don't talk about. And so I think the thing that's being presented, like, you know, eat less, eat less meat, we can save the planet is um, very, very, very um, small, narrow scope of the big picture conversation. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, you know, you mentioned um, that there are people who think, you know, veganism, like having these plant-based foods can be destroying like our ecosystems in different ways. Um, There is a lot of conversation there that when you are, you know, harvesting like a single crop, a monocrop, you are, you are plowing, you know, you're plowing up the field, you are taking whatever else is living there and, you know, getting rid of it um, to be able to grow these crops. And, you know, there's deer and, rabbits and coyotes and all these different, you know, animals that maybe are not uh, farmed animals are not domesticated animals that may lose their lives because of these processes. I feel like when people think about plants, a plant-based product or a plant food, they think of like a small farmer and a very, like almost like a garden, you know, someone's going out and hand picking things. And that is just not the case for a lot of our fruits and vegetables these days. There is a lot of mechanization, which is not necessarily bad or good. Um, I actually just posted a video of my brother harvesting potatoes, you know, it's there, you know, seeing it, it's, they're still like not, I don't want to say destruction, but you are disrupting the soil, the natural soil to be able to harvest any crop. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, what, what it is, whether it's a vegetable or a fruit or whatever. Um, and so there is a toll on our environment, no matter what the food is, every food on the planet has a footprint and not just a carbon footprint, a rippling effect of, of that we are taking nutrients out of our our earth to be able to nourish us, no matter whether that's plant-based or animal-based. And so I do think that has to be a part of the conversation. And something that Natalie didn't touch on, I'm kind of surprised she didn't, is, um, you know, the principles of soil health. We are realizing that soil is this amazing thing that can sequester carbon and that is life-giving. And one of the amazing things about soil uh, with cattle is that cattle play a really important role in our soil for um, being uh, a natural fertilizer, basically, you know, we're on our dairy farm, we actually compost 100% of our solid manure. So all of our cows manure gets composted, and then it gets sent out to other farms, neighboring farms to, you know, fertilize the soil so that they can grow another crop again the next year. And I think that's a really powerful statement that you can use less synthetic fertilizers if you're using cow manure. Um, and so we need to be kind of having some of those conversations as well. Well, and that's where the opposite end of the spectrum, like regenerative ag comes into is that like Tara mentioned, regenerative ag is, um, you know, they, they don't believe in the monoculture. Um, they believe in, in the soil health. And so that's why, um, you'll see regenerative ag, you know, um, including animals, um, which it is, it's one of the, the, there's five principles to, to soil health. And the fifth principle is a grazing animal. Um, and so you'll see, that's why they advocate for, um, you know, well-raised animals out at pasture grazing is because, um, they believe the soil is kind of the answer and it is soil is um, a carbon sink. It can pull carbon out of the air. Um, and, and, and we can, you know, have positive impacts on our environment that way. And so that's kind of the whole belief system and the whole push for regenerative ag. What are those five principles? Oh, um, give me one second. I probably have them written down. I don't know them. It's no till, um, it's like minimal soil disturbance. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, a lot of what you hear about is how people are really deficient in certain minerals like magnesium and the way we're treating the soil is contributing to that. Um, and it's just, yeah, I think as soon as you open this up, it's kind of a huge can of worms, isn't it? Of, of balancing mm -hmm. the environment with human health, with the welfare of the animals, with everything else, as you were saying, what about what are the other animals that are not being farmed that are living in the environment, the deer, the rabbits, the insects, everything? Yeah. I mean, on our ranch, that's, you know, one of the good signs of that we're doing a really good job is if we drive out at pasture and we see, you know, life, uh, lots of different life in the soil, you know, you want to see different worms, bugs, all of that. You want to see the most diversity possible. Um, and that comes into wildlife too. If we see deer, if we see rabbits, if we see different birds, you know, that means we're doing a really good job. If we see more plant variety, um, we're doing a really good job, which again is a very, you know, stark contrast to when you think of um, monoculture, rows and rows of soy, which is, um, you know, one thing we love to point out when people are talking about a plant-based burger and saying that's better. It's like, do you really want to get in the conversation of um, maybe soy raising? You know, there are some mm. things that could, you know, pros and cons of that as well. Um, to answer your question, the five principles of soil health, um, the first one is soil cover. So you'll hear a lot of people talk about cover crops. It basically means you want to have, you know, something the ground, you just don't want it bare and, and open to the sun. Um, so you want to keep it covered. 
um, the minimal soil disturbance. So the no-till, which is a, another big belief of what does um, no-till okay. mean? Uh, it means that so when you see tractors like pulling um, the till behind them, they will um, dig down, you know, disturb the soil so that they can do planting. Um, and there's there's machines that are no-till, so they can, you know, I don't, I guess I don't know the total science behind it, Tara. If you do feel to jump in, but you know, they're doing very minimal disturbance with when they plant that seed when it comes to planting time. And so it's just minimal disturbance because you don't want to, um, you know, like Tara said, the soil is just a living organism. So the less disturbance to it, you, when you're disturbing it, you're also kind of emitting the carbon out of it. And so there's, um, a lot of science that goes into, you know, the whole, um, minimal soil disturbance, uh, plant diversity. So that's why, again, monoculture gets a kind of a bad rap is because you want to grow more, um, than just rows. So you'll see cover crop mixes, you'll see different varieties, you'll see, you know, different things planted with, with other plants. Um, and so that's, that's one thing. And then keeping a continual living root in the soil. So again, cover crops, um, all year long, if you can have something in the soil, it's better. And then the last one is the livestock integration. Interesting. So that's one of the core, as you say, core principle of regenerative farming is having the livestock. Yeah. I mean, people love, um, to kind of give the reference. I don't know if your community's ever heard it before, but, um, you know, ruminants are not new cattle are, are not new. Um, bison buffalo are actually ruminant a ruminant animal and so when you look back at the at least here in the states the evolution of the great plains um one of the reason the great plains had such good fertile soil um is because we had ruminants grazing so there's a lot that goes into the hooves um when they're aerating the soil you know like tara mentioned they are fertilizing the soil um they are grazing their grazing can be beneficial to um biodiversity of the plants and helping them grow there's I mean, the Buffalo even, I think it was called like rooting and the way they would lay down and kind of create hollows, did something to the ground and the soil with their, you know, their big bodies. And you would see kind of dents in the soil. Um, and there was benefits in that. And so, um, you know, I don't, I don't, um, you know, higher belief, you know, for me, it's a God higher belief for whatever that is for someone listening. Um, but when you look at it that way, you can see that they were designed to work with nature. You know, there are things about the animal um, that benefit that entire ecosystem. And so removing them can be, um, in, in my opinion, as an expert in ranching, um, it can be very detrimental to the environment. Mm. And, uh, you mentioned that you touched a little bit on, on God, on spirituality, some religions see the cow as sacred, um, horses, uh, people talk about, you know, whispering to horses, there's a connection. I'm curious, what connection have you found with animals, personality, anything that you can share? Yeah. Um, we actually use horses on our operation. They're one of my favorite animals. I grew up with them. Um, I think they are beautiful and intelligent. Um, you know, I, I think this gets into something that, um, maybe this is a little bit different of a direction than you were thinking. Um, but I do think a problem we have in society, um, while honoring, um, you know, the animals for the beings they are, I think sometimes we can do an injustice to as we're raising up and maybe giving human characteristics. There's cartoons, there's, um, you know, Disney shows, there's all sorts of things that kind of, um, I think, give human traits to animals that maybe aren't necessarily there. Um, and so we can kind of start blurring that line of, um, you know, I guess the differences between a human and animal. And so, yeah, I think, as you mentioned, there's religious, I think, um, you know, India, right. The cow's like the most sacred animal. And so they actually have like, I think the most cattle, do they, Tar, do they have the most cattle in the world? They right? have the most um, cattle in the world without consuming any of the cattle. Correct. Yeah. And so they um, obviously have a really high footprint and so their carbon footprint. And so there are, you know, pros and cons to, to honoring those belief systems. Um, I think it's a hard conversation to navigate. You know, I'm again, going back to food choice, I'm always stand for food choice. And so if people choose to not eat animal proteins because it has something to do with, um, you know, if it's animal welfare, um, I would still advocate for the industry because, um, I think animal welfare has never been better when it comes to ranching and farming right now. I think we're at a really good place. I'm very proud of our practices. I, I will not deny that there are obviously bad apples. I think there are bad apples in every single industry. Um, I think if it comes to a, you know, a higher level than that, like I said, if it's a spirit spirituality thing, I obviously, um, very much so respect that, but if it, falls in any other category, you know, if it's, you're doing it for better for the planet, you're doing it for better for your body. Um, or if you're doing it because you don't think animals are cared for, um, I will always advocate for meat in the diet at that point. Mm. Anything you'd like to add to her? Yeah. And Natalie touched on that, you know, animal welfare is never even better. And I think that is something that, um, you know, your listeners, I feel like I would love for them to leave with that knowing that like farmers, I feel like 
and ranchers every day are working to do things better than they did the year before to be more sustainable. Um, and so while there's things that we can fix and there's things that we can do different within our food supply system, I'm still really proud of what we have built and the, you know, access to food we have. Um, typically, I usually am very proud of our affordability, but I know in recent years with inflation, that hasn't been true. And so I do think there's things that we could improve on. Um, but overall, I, you know, I personally, and I know Natalie feels this, I'm so proud to be a part of the agricultural industry and um, wish more people could see that, you know, what the ag community is like. I know as people are more removed from ag, they do have more questions about their food and connecting back. And I always encourage people to, you know, connect with your local farmer, connect with your local farmer's market, whatever access you have available to you, because it is really cool to see how your food is grown and raised. Like it's something we consume every single day, three times a day. And we don't always know a lot about it. I mean, even as a, a dairy farmer, there's lots of other parts of the industry, as Natalie alluded to, like, I don't know a lot about poultry. I don't know a lot about pork. Um, and yet it's something I really enjoy. And so taking a moment to just think of, you know, where, where that food came from um, and learn a little bit more about it, I feel like is, is just something really beautiful to be a part of. Yeah, really beautiful. And as you say, you're supporting local farmers. Um, thank you, ladies. You have uh, been very generous with your time and shared so much. Uh, I've definitely been feel I've been educated on this episode. Where can people find more about you, about your show? I know you have a show talking all about that some of the topics we've talked about and a whole lot more. Please share. Yeah. So if this conversation has, you know, sparked interest for you and you're a podcast listener, obviously, uh, we hope you'll go over to Discover Ag. Um, that is our podcast where we talk uh, each week about, you know, things that we talked about, food labels, um, you know, different types of meat, uh, milk, all these conversations, kind of whatever is trending in the news. We cover different news pieces. Um, and so if there's something coming up in the news, chances are we're covering it and um, giving you a little bit of insider information from the perspective of a dairy farmer and a cattle rancher. And we do, you know, it's a lot of fun. Um, we do do some educating and research and things, but we try to have fun with it and pick some really great and interesting topics that I think are relevant to people's lives. Yeah. And then you can follow us on Instagram. We both have personal channels. Mine's Natalie Kovorik, Um, and you will get to see what the day in the life is like of a Nebraska rancher. And then Tara's is her personal name as well, too. It's Tara Vanderdusen. And obviously, if you follow her, you get to see, you know, behind the scenes of the dairy industry of a, you know, New Mexico dairy farmer. Amazing. Thank you so much. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks Thank for, you having, for us. having us. If you enjoy this podcast, visit femalebiohacker.com and be part of a special community of women looking to optimize their mind, body, and spirit. If you're tired of sifting through countless websites and books to find the answers to your questions about nutrition, fitness, hormones, mindset, spirituality, and biohacking, the search is over. I've done the research for you and every week we go live with in-depth masterclasses, Q&A calls and monthly challenges to help you transform your life. And when you join the collective, you'll have access to a wealth of information, including deep dive masterclasses and biohacking toolkits on our members' favorites like metabolic flexibility, gut health, stress and resiliency, and stepping into your most empowered self. Get access and be coached by me and my team and level up your health, career and life all for less than a dollar a day. Go to femalebiohacker.com or click the link below to get started and I'll see you on the inside.